needed. <clears throat> a local church should have beneficial influence upon individual followers of Christ. Members of a healthy local church should be able to say, God is using the ministry of my church to encourage and to stimulate my faith in Christ. But such an individual focus, we know, is not the end of the matter, is it? God's Word reveals that the local church is also a community of faith. It is a spiritual family. And so as members of Christ's body, we are to live for one another. We are to build up one another's faith in Christ. A healthy local church is never a group of individuals who are fixated on how the church serves their own personal interests. They know that it does, but that's not where the end of the discussion is found. They know that they are to live out their faith corporately, indeed to think and to act and to serve as a body of believers, to build that body up. And they pour out their individual efforts. We gather together. We talk with one another. We minister together. We pray with one another. We study the Scriptures together in order to actively contribute to the health, not just of our own personal lives, but to the health of the body of Jesus Christ, the local church. So members of a healthy local church recognize that they are part of a much grander agenda than privatized spirituality. Many pursuing privatized spirituality pursue it in front of the television set on Sunday mornings. But there are individual members of local churches who pursue privatized spirituality coming to the church as well. They get what it is that helps them and they leave with their little package and think no broader than themselves. We know better than this. The Bible teaches this so clearly. And we're striving to be a church that sees a larger picture. Growing believers think bigger than themselves in order to build up the body, the local church. And so likewise, the local church must think beyond its own borders and relate redemptively to unbelievers outside the local church. It's not all about me, and it's not all about us. It is also about them. There are two poles in how a church relates to unbelievers in this world. How it moves beyond its own body, its own family, indeed its own building. On the one end are the churches that track toward isolation. They're isolated from the world around them. Everything that they do is to draw in and to protect, and kind of like a castle mentality. The other pole is accommodation, accommodating the world. They get very close to the world. The problem is, is that the world gets very close to them. In a brief passage in Colossians 4, we're going to look at chapter 1 first of all, but in Colossians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul provides an ideal balance between these two poles. As he closes out this section of application in the book of Colossians, we've worked our way to this place, as he works out that application, 
we will see that it will not permit us as believers to move toward isolation on the one hand or accommodation on the other. Now the focus, you remember, in Colossians 3 are the responsibilities of corporate edification. There's much emphasis that's been placed upon how we relate to one another as the body of Christ to build each other up in the faith as members of the local church. And then you remember as we got to the end of chapter 3 and just that first verse into chapter 4, he moves beyond the local church and its relationships with one another and moves out into the more social realm of the ancient household, including your family, but also your extended family members and masters and slaves within that context. Who we are in Jesus Christ, our new identity in Him, is to move out past our own soul It's to move past even the body of Christ, and it's to be lived out in daily life as family members, as people in the workforce. In the natural progression of this emphasis, we come now to chapter 4 and verse 2, and here we see Paul pointing us even beyond the local church. Now let me point you back to chapter 1 first before we get to this section in chapter 4. And let's remember this in chapter 1 verse 12. In chapter 1 verse 12, Paul began the book by giving thanks to the Father. He's in prayer here in verse 12. The Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We start there knowing that we are born in the domain of darkness. We are lost in this world, but Christ gives us light. He qualifies us. He allows us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So there is that redemption that is behind all of what Paul is saying here, I think, in chapter 4. This passage starts with a general call to pray, but that call is quickly tied to our relationship to unbelievers. And that theme will carry through the section. So we'll notice that in chapter 4 and verse 2, a call to prayer that will then be carried out down through verse 6, connected to our relationship to the world outside the body. In verses 2 through 4, we find a call to persistent prayer for the advance of the gospel. A call to persistent prayer for the advance of the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. There's a general call for believers to pray. As the new humanity in Christ, we will devote ourselves to prayer. We will be persistent in it with diligence. Now, don't think merely of seasons of formal prayer, although these are utterly significant. But we should also think of remaining in a state of continuing spiritual alertness, breathing prayers to God throughout the day. There's a lot of times when this will be almost subconscious because our concentration will be on our work, will be on what we're doing through the day. But learning to pray, just breathing prayers to God throughout the day, 
Always evidencing that dependence upon Him. Pray in the car. Pray as we walk. Pray as we work. As we stop to eat. As we consider a decision. As we find ourselves in a tough spot in the day. As we find ourselves beset by temptations to sin. Pray. Pray continually. Pray diligently. Pray without ceasing. Christian, you will not grow in spiritual maturity if you're not learning the discipline of praying in your spirit through the day. Lifting prayers without speaking. Perhaps the lips move, perhaps they don't. But you're speaking prayers to the Lord throughout the day. What you're doing there is simply acknowledging that your life is dependent on God. That your every breath is supplied by Him, and you acknowledge that. You breathe that prayer day in and day out. This is what it means to pray with the Spirit, as he says here, of watchfulness, being watchful in it, with a spiritual alertness to discern what Christ desires, an alertness in prayer against the attack of Satan, an alertness to Christ's return. How often we fall in prayerless state. And it is also with thanksgiving, it says here. The Spirit that pervades our prayers. We say then, and we know then in our spirit, God is good. Can we say it in our own hearts? He is good, and He does good. And every good gift in our lives is from Him. Any Christian who walks in the awareness of God's goodness, of His presence, is one learning to breathe thanksgiving to God all day long. We are infinitely wealthy in Christ. We have everything that pertains to life and godliness in Him. We have an inheritance in eternity. Any Christian who really gets that is breathing prayers of thanksgiving all day long. He pours out His mercies upon us. May we respond in prayer. This is what Paul's calling the Colossians to and what the Spirit is instructing us to do, to be praying all the time with diligence, with perseverance. We fight spiritual lethargy. I do. Do you? Selfish ambition, demanding pride. These things beset us. They come upon us. They attack us. But these are chased away by a spirit of thanksgiving. And I I can say this too by experience. It is amazing what can happen when we take control of our thoughts and our minds and turn them to consider the goodness of God in our lives. To meditate on what He has done, what He's revealed in His Word, who He is and what He's accomplishing in my life. A spirit of humble recognition of the wonder of our standing in Christ and the immeasurable blessings that He pours out upon His people. Little by little, day by day, recognizing this. So, watchfully with thanksgiving. As we move forward in the passage, it becomes clear that Paul's emphasis on prayer is hardwired to this perception. And I don't mean to speak for him. But I think it makes the whole passage hold together to know that it's hardwired to the perception of the risen, ascended, and reigning Christ who is sovereignly calling out a people for His name from among the nations. 
those walking in this domain of darkness, there is a mission to them on the part of God's people. And Paul has this in view, has this in mind as that makes, as makes sense as the passage plays out. So continue steadfastly in prayer. Be a person of vigilant prayer all the time. But now he leads to a specific request of prayers for Paul's witness of the gospel. Verse 3, at the same time as you're praying, as this is a habit and a discipline of life, pray also for us. Include us in your prayers. That God may open to us a door for the word. A door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So learning to pray persistently and devotedly, Paul asked that the Colossian church would include petitions to God on his behalf. He asked that they petition God to open a door for the word. How do you read that? A door for the word. A door used figuratively here, obviously, and it was used that way in the ancient world. A figure of speech that speaks of an opportunity. This opportunity is for the word. That is the truth of the gospel. Now let's go back to chapter 1 and verse 24 as we consider that word that Paul is proclaiming. Chapter 1 and verse 24. He says, you remember, I rejoice in my sufferings. He's writing from prison. I rejoice in these sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. A door for the Word. To make the Word of God fully known. Verse 26, that is the mystery. Hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. Once hidden, now revealed to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this mission, for this goal, to this end. I struggle I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, in that context, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? As he comes back to chapter 4, pray that God may open a door for the word. You notice that his prayer is, is, it personifies the word. It's not even a, a prayer for him, but it's a prayer for the word itself, in a sense. It's a personification personified power the emphasis as one has said falls on the dynamic almost personal character of the word paul knows that if god will clear the way for the message the message of christ crucified and risen if he will clear the way for that word to be heard people will respond christ is saving a people for his name we can't convince them we can't control their minds. We cannot force Christ upon them. But God has all power to save anybody. You remember who's writing the book. The man was actively involved in persecuting, imprisoning, and behind the death of Christians. God can save anyone. You and I 
can't save anybody. And so we pray that God will do it. Paul knows if God clears the way that the message will be delivered. The message of what? It is the mystery of Christ. It comes back to that theme from chapter 1. From eternity past, God chose to save people from their sin, to cleanse them, to make them His own. This work of redemption always hinged on Jesus' death in the place of sinners as their substitutionary sacrifice. But it took time for the canvas of salvation history to be painted to that place where it became clear who Christ is and what He was going to do in fulfillment of all that had come before. The fulfillment of the ages rested upon Him, but it took time in God working out that plan to reveal that truth at exactly the right place in history. In time, with all the right historical preparations, God took on flesh in the person of Christ, and Jesus purchased with His own blood the church, paying the penalty of the sins of His people. He died to pay that penalty, and He rose from the dead. That mystery, that which has been hidden, is now revealed in Christ. And it's that message that I am proclaiming and asking that you would pray that that message would be proclaimed widely and faithfully, effectively. Preaching this truth outside of the church, out there in the hostile world, was no safe undertaking, was it? That's what kind of just leads him to say at the end of verse 3, on account of which I am in prison. Paul does not pray for the release of his person from prison, but he prays for the release of the gospel in proclamation to the lost. That a door would be opened, that this message would be taken into the world. God might answer his prayer by releasing him from prison and allowing him to proclaim the gospel out there in the world, or he may leave him in prison. It doesn't matter to Paul. Wherever the opportunity is found, that's where I want to be. Pray first for an opportunity for the gospel. Secondly, verse 4, pray this way that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul knew that only God can create gospel opportunities. He also realized that his utter dependence on the Lord for the message to be effective. Now, we struggle a little bit with our English translation here with the idea of clarity. The idea is really not clear, distinct speech versus garbled speech. The point is the kind of proclamation that illumines the gospel message for what it is. It's speech that puts a light on Christ and what He's done. Pray that I would have speech like that to make it attractive, to make it seen, to reveal what God has revealed. In a sense, that's what he's saying, that I might actually reveal to others what God has revealed in the person of Christ to me. I have seen who Christ is, but I can tell you, speech has a way of muddling that, not in the sense of just clarity of diction, but in the sense of the words that we put together, it is possible to not make that very clear. 
And Paul says, I want to reveal this truth. I want to shed light on it. I want people to see it in the beauty of what it really is. Have you ever proclaimed the gospel to an unbeliever, to a blank stare, to wondering what's going on in the mind of that person and being pretty convinced they think you're absolutely insane? Have you ever been in that spot? It's a weird place to be, isn't it? It's not a very happy place to be. But it's a place we sometimes find ourselves. Or you proclaim that truth, and the unbeliever actually sees the wonder of it. Have you ever been there? You're in that moment, and I've been in these spots at places saying, I can't make this clear, I can't make this make sense, I can't reveal this truth the way I want to. And that person is seeing it. And you're going, are you sure? No, it's not what I said. It's not that I put it together in a right way. It's not that I use right diction. It's that this is a God moment. This is a moment where He comes and takes the weak, foolish words that we sometimes use and He sheds light on it. That's what Paul's praying. Paul's one of the smart. Every room he walked into, he's the smartest guy. He's not lacking in intellectual capacity. He can marshal an argument like no one else. But this wise, schooled, disciplined, devoted man knew that he was absolutely dependent on God. That gives me courage. Because I think standing next to Paul, I just I, I, I crumble. Think, how could I ever declare the gospel like he could? You can't. And don't put yourself next to anybody else on the planet. Because it's not about intellectual capacity or verbal skill. It's about the power of God. Let's never forget that. If someone sees the light of the gospel, it has been revealed to them by the Spirit of God. And that's what Paul is pleading for in prayer that I may make it clear, that I may actually reveal it, that God would use me as an instrument to reveal it. He opening the opportunity in time, but opening the opportunity of that individual and then allowing me to speak the truth that God uses to change their heart, to show them His reality. At verse 5, now Paul turns to the Colossian believers themselves and he exhorts them along similar lines with the petitions that he's just asked them to take up for him. So we have this call to persistent prayer for the advance of the gospel ultimately, verses 2 through 4. And now a call to wise living for the advance of the gospel in the lives of the Colossians. So be praying always that the message would be going out as God opens opportunities and allows us to reveal that truth. Secondly, live wisely for the advance of the gospel. Pray diligently and live wisely. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Walk in wisdom. The point is not be smart around unbelievers. The point is live your life in reverent submission to God's revealed will as you relate to unbelievers. God's wisdom is how to live wisdom. It's putting life together according to His perspective and what, he's te- what He teaches us. 
walk in that, live in that wisdom, and do so toward outsiders. Did you hear that word? Outsiders. Going back to the beginning, isolation, accommodation. Where are we here? This is careful fence around the position so that we're not allowed to get to that position of accommodation. They are outsiders. Now, that doesn't mean that people outside of the church are people that the local church shuts out. Not at all. They're not people that the local church despises for one reason or another. It's maddening the people who think, I can only come to church if I'm good. Just maddening to us, isn't it? See, we wouldn't any of us be here if that's why we're in church. We, we want it to be a place of welcome to sinners because that's what we all are. And yet, there is an outside. And I think the outside is outside of Christ in the context of the book. Because they have not yet trusted Him for salvation from God's wrath against sinners, they're outside the circle of the body of Christ. They're not part of the new man. They're still in Adam. A healthy, biblically rooted local church has a clear perception that there are people who are outside. They're not in Christ yet. So such churches are friendly. They are winsome. They love people. They make it clear that they love people. They understand sinners quite well because they know they're sinners themselves. But having said that, they also do not accommodate unbelievers as unbelievers. They seek to rescue them and to bring them into the fold from outside of it. Living wisely is to see those people from God's perspective. If they're not reconciled to God, a church is doing them no favors to treat them as if they are. It treats them with love and respect and invitation, but it always balances that with you are outside of Christ. And I love you enough to say so and to call you in. There's a slogan that many churches who are bent toward accommodation have used in recent years. And that is the phrase, the slogan, belong, believe, become. Belong first, and then as you find opportunity somewhere along the way in the relationship with our church, you may believe. I think the balance that Paul would point us to here as he speaks very pointedly of the outsider is rather to believe first, then to belong to the local church, and then to become the person Christ wants you to be. There are outsiders. And if we have the mind of Christ, we will relate to those outsiders by making the best use of our time. You notice that phrase there in verse 5. Making the best use of the time. The Greek word is exagorazomenoi. Isn't that a great word? Exagorazomenoi. You say, big deal. But you heard something there you didn't know. Exagora. Remember that agora in your studies in school and junior high and you studied Roman history and there was the agora, there was the marketplace, the place where things were purchased. 
That's the idea here on some level, and we don't want to overpress it. But there is a purchasing of time in the agora of life. We're to buy up the time in the sense of investing ourselves in the proclamation of Christ to the lost. I don't think we should overread it, have some sense of redemption here. That something's held in, in stock somewhere and we need to redeem it with the per- It's just simply saying, use your time wisely. Buy it up. We're to make good use of our time so that we create opportunities and grasp opportunities to converse with the lost. And what a day for this passage to fall today as we start our home groups. This is perfect. Because we get together now in smaller groups following this service as we do on the first Sunday of the month, and we're going to talk about this. How do we buy up the time? How do we invest our time? How can we work with one another to encourage each other to buy up time as we relate to unbelievers? And I wonder, for those of you that are part of that work and that gathering this afternoon, how will your home group, how will our home group contribute to Eden Baptist Church's endeavors to reveal the message of Christ crucified and risen to unbelievers? What will we do? How will we accomplish that? How will we buy up time, take the opportunities to proclaim that truth? Paul continues his exhortation in a manner that parallels the prayers of his of requests that he's just issued. So verses 3 and 4, he said what? Pray for opportunities and pray that I'd reveal the message, that God would use me to reveal the message. Verse 5 parallels that first point. It's an exhortation regarding opportunity. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use, purchasing up the time to use it wisely. There's opportunity. So some of the opportunities that God opens, we open. He uses us as the key to open the door. Be wise in how you do that. But then paralleling that second idea, verse 6, is an exhortation regarding effectiveness. We need God to produce opportunities to open those doors of hearts that are closed by nature. And then we need to be effective in grasping those opportunities. And that's his his call here in verse 6 to us. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Gracious. Maybe better translated, full of grace. That idea. Not merely kind words and gracious speech, though that's a given, but rather speech that is filled with the grace of God towards sinners. It's a little bit larger than simply being kind in our speech. It's being full of grace. That is, as I relate to unbelievers, my life is full of the grace of God and that spills out to them. That becomes clear to them as I extend grace to them as Christ has extended grace to me. As I revel in the grace of Christ that's present in my life. So This is how I want to effectively take the message to people and speak to outsiders with speech seasoned with salt. Clearly a figure of speech. And it was used in the ancient context in reference to wittiness or to winsomeness or to appropriateness, and especially in rabbinic writings, which I think should be where we bend toward wisdom. Speaking the truth of God winsomely. I 
The apostle counsels then against those witnesses. Do you know some? Have you seen some? I think probably on some occasions I've been one. But he is counseling us here against those witnesses who are combative, who are argumentative, who are obnoxious, who are needlessly offensive. The better part of wisdom in some cases is to be direct and firm and perhaps even confrontational depending who the individual is. We see this in Jesus' relationship particularly with the Pharisees. But there is no place for bitter, angry, obnoxious, offensive, or even glib speech. It's to be full of grace. God has treated me graciously, and I communicate the message of His salvation to you full of grace. The lost do not reject the gospel because they are dumb. They reject the gospel because they are blind. And so we pray, and so we use words that we strive to bring out the beauty of Christ Our witness to unbelievers should be winsome and full of grace. As as Peter said it, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. Now here's buying the time and here's being winsome is to recognize that unbelievers are asking you that question all the time. Very rarely will one come to you and say, how do I go to heaven? I sense that I'm lost and separated from Christ. I've come to the realization that I'm born into the domain of darkness. What's the exit strategy? It'd be nice if they did that, wouldn't it? But that's not, how they're, that's not what they're going to say. Why on earth do you go to church every Sunday? That's asking you for a reason, the hope that's in you. That's the question right there. Are we going to use it or are we not? You must, have, you must have really found the right wife. I don't understand how you guys get along so well together. It's just I didn't get such a good draw. But you got really lucky, didn't you? Oh, that's, oh man, that's a, that's a question for the hope that's within you. That's a chance to talk about sin, to talk about grace, to talk about hope. And on and on it goes. They're asking this question all the time. We need speech seasoned with salt, with winsomeness, with appropriateness, with wittiness even, but above all with wisdom, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We desperately need the wisdom of Christ to learn the right way to speak the salvation of Jesus. Don't take that in the direction that that's not me, I don't have it, I just need to keep my mouth shut. Because every time I talk about Christ, it sounds terrible. Remember, it doesn't rely on you. It relies on what God will do with your foolish words. But having said that, grow. One of the ways you grow, if you wanted to grow to be a great baseball player, it's really not going to happen by watching television, is it? You, just, you, just, you, can, you can know everything about every player in baseball and every swing and how it happens and where their feet are positioned and, and all of the stuff about it by watching TV. You're going to have to go up and pick up a bat and swing at a ball. And so it is with our witness. Yes, we're all poor batters. 
But there is nothing to replace doing it. Falling on your face, sometimes feeling foolish, but getting up and doing it again. Seeking to use speech in a gracious way that keeps probing and seeks to keep coming back to the message of Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. It's a lifelong project. We need each other. We need to talk today about how to do it. And so this passage, I think, very clearly points us away from the accommodating church. There's language here that just doesn't work with that. The the church that very anxiously moves out into the realm of the world outside of the church. They're doing, in a sense, the right thing there. They, They happily move into the world. But as they do, they also happily seek common cause with unbelievers. Such a church goes out into the world as it should, but the problem is that in the process, the world gets into the church. In fact, some churches seem to be little more than drooling pawns in the anxious service of liberal politics. It's like they just can't wait to show the world they're lining up with the agenda. While conservative churches are less accommodating of the world by nature, some of them are just as married to conservative politics. They move into the world, but the agenda is political. The agenda is provided by the world itself to the Christian church. Rather than moving into the world in a redemptive way, in Christ's way. If you hung around Jesus very long, you realized His agenda wasn't political. He was the King of kings, and His agenda wasn't political. It's not to say we can't have a part in politics. I don't mean to say that. But the church's mission is not to link up with the world and take cues as to how to be liberal in politics or conservative in politics. It's a whole wrong agenda. The message is that Christ is Lord of all nations. He is Savior of the church. And to take that message to, uh, to unbelievers. But we have a word here also, don't we? A very strong word against the isolationist church. Those churches that maintain their holy huddle and keep the treasures of Christ largely to themselves. They preach about the evils of the world. They emphasize holiness. They take great pride in getting all of their doctrinal ducks in a row and making sure that everybody understands precisely where they belong, but their bodies don't ever get out into the world as salt and light. They don't make a difference in this world by engaging unbelievers with the message of Christ's lordship and His saving grace. And so, while they do these things that are not bad, preaching against sin, pursuing holiness, teaching the truth. They isolate in a way that does not synchronize with Christ's vision of the church. He did not pour His treasures out upon us that we keep them to ourselves. The church is not about polishing the jewels. It's about sharing them pointing others to them, shedding light upon them, and saying to the lost world, do you see this? Do you see this one who has come in flesh to save his people from their sins? He is beautiful. 
So what we need to do, if we're going to synchronize our lives as a local church with this passage, is not to be accommodationists. Not to go into the world and ask them what they want us to be. And to adjust our thinking and our purpose according to those who are outside of Christ. And it's not on the other side to be isolationist. To stay in our little cave and hope that nobody troubles our church. What Paul presents to us here, what the Spirit of God is saying to Eden Baptist Church, is that we would be an engaging church. A church that's not isolated or accommodating, but is out among unbelievers proclaiming to them that they are outside of Christ. And welcoming them into the circle of Christ's people. That's who we are to be, and we couldn't possibly respond to this passage or even make any sense of it if we don't see that. Our task is to proclaim the mystery of Christ, the greatest news that was, has ever been proclaimed and was designed to be proclaimed. That's the controlling feature, is that we be an engaging church, knowing there are the lost and the saved. There is life and death. There is light and there is darkness, and never losing that distinction, but going out into this world winsomely, attractively, appropriately, saying to the treasure of Christ, look at this. See this beauty. Know who He is. I'm not asking you to look at me. I'm not asking you to, to, to put my life on some pedestal. I'm saying look at Christ and look at who His people are in Him. If you are a new creature in Christ and a member of the new humanity in Christ, then you know that we have news to proclaim. Ours is not a message about future possibilities. We do not preach philosophical theories. The gospel we proclaim is far more than a merely comforting word to a troubled world. It is news. It is news about something wonderful that has been accomplished. Christ was crucified. He made peace with God by His death on the cross for His people. It is news about Christ risen, conquering death, reigning today, coming again, and soon to set all right in redemption. A biblically balanced, engaged local church is one where individuals are fed and nurtured in the faith. Individually. Personally. It is a body, secondly, that builds itself up in love as a family of God. But it is also a body that moves out into this world to proclaim the life-changing, transformational gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be all three. And so it comes back, bring it around to the individual. Where are you? Where are we as a church? Where is the world in its relationship to us? There are some among us as followers of Christ that really have no sense that I have redemptively and effectively ever proclaimed the gospel of Christ to an unbeliever. Now I suspect that's few. Because in some way, shape, or form, that opportunity is there and it is taken by genuine believers. But if you find yourself there and say, I just don't open my mouth for Christ, then I would just encourage you to think hard today. In fact, to pray, 
today. Prayers of repentance, prayers of request, prayers of change. And don't make it something that is ugly that you now need to start doing. But realize the beauty of opening your mouth and declaring the truth of Christ to those who don't know Him. Yeah, Paul was in prison. They may not like you. They may laugh at you. They may not, you may not say things the way that they are impressed with. But start. Realize that this is what Christ has called you to. So you would counsel, if you're a member of this church, you would counsel someone who just came to church to have their own heart fed individually. You would counsel them and say, you need to understand the body of Christ. You need to understand how to invest in the, in the community, in the faith the family of God. So the Spirit of God may be counseling you today. That's good that you're there, but I want you to step outside of the protection and the umbrella of the local church and as an individual Christian and with other Christians out in the world, proclaim Christ. Make Him known. Talk to somebody about the beauty that you see in Christ. And if you're sitting here today and you say, I don't see the beauty. I don't see it. The reason for that is twofold. One is because you don't want to see it. It's in your own heart. I'm not saying that to be mean-spirited or harsh. I'm just saying you're making a choice. And you can't ever get out of that. You don't want to see it. The second side, the second aspect of it is you can't see it. Now don't take the second and run and cancel the first. The choice is yours. You are making a choice to reject Christ. But it is also equally true. It's a both and. You can't see it. Which is why we are a praying church. We're praying for you. We're praying that you would see a beauty that you cannot see because we know that you'll be eternally thankful and that you too will join us in breathing prayers of thanksgiving day in and day out for the wonder of Christ crucified and risen for his people. Pray that God will show you as we are praying for your soul. Let's pray and continue in prayer. Lord, we need you. Those who are lost and separated from Christ desperately need the light of the gospel and the ministry of the Spirit of God, and we pray that you would supply it. We ask indeed that this sermon itself would have been an opportunity, a door to proclaim the message of Christ. And I pray for those separated from Him that they would see that opportunity and indeed seize upon it and plead with you in prayer to show them your wonder, never excusing their condition because you're withholding something, but to recognize that they're holding on to something that's sinking them down. Lord, I pray for those who know Christ as Savior. May we be rebuked, encouraged, strengthened, motivated 
to proclaim the wonder and beauty of Christ to a lost and needy world. Help us at work, in our neighborhoods, at school, on teams and with clubs, with extended family members, wherever we are. Teach us how to have speech that is seasoned with the gospel and full of grace. We need you to hear this prayer. And we will thank you for what you're pleased to do to bring glory to your name through our witness. May this church grow to that end. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please stand with me. And before we run off to other things today, before we talk about what we've heard with others, let's think about it quietly in our own hearts.